0: Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning to the Gospel according to Mark, and we are turning to Mark chapter 15, and reading from verses 21 down to verse 32. Mark chapter 15 at verse 21, and you'll find this on page 852 if you're using the Church Bibles. to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they, divided, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, We have been going in recent weeks, we have been looking at the events surrounding uh, Jesus's death. And this morning we are coming to the crucifixion, uh, which is at the very heart, not only of uh, the events surrounding Jesus's death, uh, but the very heart of uh, the hope of Christianity. Uh, It is the symbol of Christianity. Uh, Christians use the symbol of a cross as a sign of their hope because of what was achieved, what, what happened as a result of Jesus's death. And this morning we want to to look at the crucifixion of Jesus and we want to see that because Jesus was crucified to save sinners, uh, we are to trust uh, in his accomplishments. And we want to look at uh, these verses in just a couple of thoughts, but we want to first think about the fact that he was crucified. And then secondly, we'll come to the significance or why he was crucified. But we want to be able to establish that he was crucified as well. But uh, just as we come to this passage, it is uh, helpful to bear in mind what has happened leading up to this point. You remember that uh, the Sanhedrin had met and had condemned Jesus uh, on charges of blasphemy. That Jesus had uh, decreed, he had said that he was the Christ, that he was the son of the blessed one. He was declaring himself to being the promised king of Daniel 7 and of Psalm 110, that his kingdom was one that was everlasting and one that was universal, uh, which the Sanhedrin rejected as blasphemous. Only God uh, can be describing himself in such ways. But as a result, they handed him over to Pilate uh, to have him put to death. And Pilate discerned that this was really uh, a basis of envy, that they were acting on, that there was no legitimate grounds to put him to death. He even said, I find no guilt with this man. But because the people were crying out, uh, Pilate eventually gave in to their demands. He released Barabbas uh, and he ultimately had Jesus scourged and then he was sent off to be crucified. And you remember we were talking about that scourging effect, although it is very concise in Mark's account. Uh, to be scourged or to be flogged would be to be whipped uh, with uh, leather whips that would have plated bones or plated lead wrapped around those leather throngs uh, and that the whipping would have been so severe that it would sometimes expose to the very bones of an individual and that not all people even survived the flogging to get to the crucifixion. But this is what happened to Jesus. He was, he was flogged. Uh, then he was mocked by the Gentiles. He was mocked by the, the soldiers here. And now we are being told that he was sent off to be crucified, as Pilate had said. In John's gospel, it tells us uh, that any condemned, uh, sorry, it tells us that Jesus started to make his way to the place of execution. A condemned person uh, was to carry their own cross or to carry their own crossbeam, uh, whichever it was. Whether it was the entirety of the cross or just the horizontal bar, they were expected to carry that uh, to the place of execution. And John's gospel tells us that Jesus did. Uh, he started off uh, towards the place of execution, but because of physical exhaustion, he wasn't able to make it all the way. And here in Mark, it tells us that there was a, a passerby, a man named Simon, Who intervenes, uh, who ultimately has to take it the rest of the way? It says there in verse 21 uh, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Uh, It is interesting uh, because Mark is the shortest gospel. And as the shortest gospel, you would expect that Mark is going to give you the shortest account of events. He's going to give you less details than, say, Matthew or Luke, uh, because everything is much more concise. But when you get to the crucifixion here, Mark is actually giving you more details in some ways. He gives you details here about Simon carrying the cross of Jesus. But more than that, he not only tells you that someone carried it, but he tells you who this person is. He gives you their name. He not only gives you their name, but he also tells you who he was with reference to his sons. He tells us that his name was Simon, and he was of Cyrene. Cyrene is on the coast of North Africa. He's an African. And either this man is a a citizen of Cyrene, or he is... Uh, part of a a community that has settled in Jerusalem. Uh, There was a Cyrenian community uh, that lived in Jerusalem. If you turn to the book of Acts, you'll read about them. But this man is someone who is a passerby. Either he is visiting Jerusalem or he is someone who has settled into Jerusalem as a Cyrenian himself. But he comes and he is being forced by the Romans to carry Jesus's cross uh, uh, he's being compelled to do that. But notice as well, it tells us he is the father of Alexander and Rufus. That's a strange detail to include in a very concise gospel. But it makes sense when we remember that Mark is writing his gospel to the church in Rome. If you remember when we looked through the book of Romans a little while back, at the end of the letter to the Romans, as Paul wrote to the church, he sent greetings. And one of the greetings that he sent was greetings to Rufus, chosen in the Lord. (coughs) And why would Paul send greetings to a man named Rufus, except that Rufus was part of the church in Rome? And why would Mark, writing his gospel to the church in Rome, make mention of Rufus here, the sons of Simon, unless Mark sees something significant, something tangible for the church there to be able to take hold of? Mark is calling attention to the fact that these events took place. But more than that, we have witnesses that can give accounts of their testimony. You know Rufus. You know Alexander. It was their father. And so Mark here is giving us something of the veracity of these events taking place. That it's not just a legend. But as he writes to the church in Rome about events that took place in Jerusalem. He's saying, you guys actually have someone that can give you testimony about what happened there. Rufus can tell you all about it. And so here, even as he's uh, giving us something of the context, he is again (coughs) underscoring the the reality of these things actually took place, uh, that the events uh, uh, took place as they said. So, as we come to look at this passage, we're trying to say, these things took place. Jesus was crucified. And here, even in that small detail about Rufus and Alexander, Mark is writing to the church in Rome saying, you know these individuals. You can listen to the testimony that was given through their father from them. But we also have to see that Uh, There's a a reliability to these events, even by thinking about a cross. We see crosses all the time. Uh, People have crosses around their their neck. Uh, People have crosses tattooed on their arms. People have crosses on their cars. And there's good reason why people put up crosses all over the place. It's because the cross symbolizes their faith. This is at the very heart of what they are trusting in. What Jesus accomplished is their salvation from sin. But it's, it can be easy for us in the 21st century to think about what a cross means and to ignore what a cross meant in the 1st century. A cross in the 1st century meant something very, very different. And as we come to think about what Jesus went through, we have to realize that there would have been nothing attractive about a cross or a man being crucified in the first century. From a Roman perspective, the cross was humiliating. The cross was reserved for the lowest of the low, uh, for the worst of criminals, of the lowest classes. In fact, no Roman could be crucified without an edict from Caesar. They were to be spared such a humiliating fate. And so from the Roman perspective, uh, this was not something that was uh, to be uh, entertained. Don Carson says, Crucifixion was unspeakably painful and degrading. Whether tied or nailed to the cross, the victim endured countless paroxysms, uh, sudden attacks that would occur again and again in their body as they pulled up with their arms and pushed with their legs to keep their chest cavity open for breathing and then collapsed in exhaustion until the demand of their body demanded oxygen. And they repeat that again and again and again. And that would carry on for up to days until finally they couldn't do it and died. This was a a torture chamber. It was a debilitating experience for someone to die this way. And no Roman would want to associate with this form of death. The Romans did that on purpose. It was a way of executing people that was meant to expose them in a humiliating way. When a person was crucified, they were crucified naked. They were crucified naked in order that they would be looked at with shame. That they would be looked at in a vulnerable way and in a state of weakness they can't do anything to protect themselves. They're exposed to all the elements and they hang there helplessly. When the Romans crucified a person, they had them crucified on crosses that were seven feet tall. They were seven feet so that their feet could not touch the bottom, but so that they were low enough that you could still look them in the eye, so that you could still look at them and mock them, so that you could still look at them with disdain. So the whole idea of a cross was one that was to disassociate. The reason why they crucified people and left them hanging there till their bodies decayed was so that no one would want to be associated with this individual. This is the fate of those who do such actions that they do. But it's not just the Roman perspective here. When we think about what a cross signifies in the first century, even from a Jewish perspective, It's something of a scandal. When we turn to the scriptures, it tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 21, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him in the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So for any pious Jew... The cross symbolized being under God's curse. Why mention all of these things? Why mention the fact that a crucified person was crucified naked? That he was only seven feet uh, up? That, that uh, he was uh, degraded in this long extended form of death? Because no one would make up a story like this in the first century if they want other people to be receptive to it. The early church spreads a message that their Lord and their Savior has been crucified. That's not going to win any favors from the Romans. To the Roman point of view, that's weakness. That's shame. That's defeat. The Romans want power and strength and glory. Why are they going to be spreading a message that no one's going to listen to unless it actually happened. From a Jewish point of view, why are they going to be telling them that their savior, their Lord, the Messiah, the Christ was crucified? When they're going to respond by saying one that is hung on a tree is cursed by God. It says so in the law of God, unless it actually happened. And so as we come to think about these events, we have to first establish the fact that these things happened. There's a veracity, there's a reasonableness as we come to look at these events to say, Jesus was crucified. And then we have to wrestle with the fact, what does that mean? But we have to realize that there there is a good reason to think all of these events took place. Not just because we have Alexander and Rufus being mentioned to the church in Rome. They have witness testimony. They knew people who were there. But because when we think about what a cross represented in the first century. Shame, humiliation, weakness, defeat, cursed by God. And yet the early church says, this happened and we believe in him. It demands that we take seriously the events that did take place on that day. We're also told something else uh, in terms of uh, the events. It tells us in verse 22 that they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Um, The exact whereabouts of Golgotha is debated. Uh, There are traditional sites of exactly where Jesus was crucified, but we know it would be not far from the city wall of Jerusalem. But we're more used to hearing the word Calvary, perhaps. Uh, Calvary is simply the English translation of a Latin word, calva, which is the word skull. So when we would say Golgotha, the place of a skull, uh, that word skull is the word calva, which we get Calvary. So we're talking about the place where Jesus was crucified. But uh, all of this is again trying to anchor us in the historicity of the reality of these events. But how is it that we're to think about Jesus's crucifixion? Mark's gospel uh, teaches us how to think about the crucifixion in light of the details about what is going on all around Jesus, that we're to make sense of it by uh, what plays out as a result. It tells us in verse 23 that uh, Jesus was offered uh, a wine mixed with myrrh, uh, but he did not take it. Uh, The mixing of wine with myrrh was a primitive narcotic. It was something that was intended to numb the pain uh, so that uh, crucified victims uh, would not endure the sensations of their pain as violently. But it tells us that Jesus uh, did not take it. And there can be uh, multiple reasons why Jesus didn't take it. But certainly one reason why Jesus uh, didn't take it was so that Jesus was fully conscious of what he was going through. Not only as he endured the wrath of God on the cross, but also so that he could speak from the cross. So that he would be able to speak forth what was going on and to help others make sense of his own crucifixion. Mark does not need to uh, simply uh, establish that Jesus was crucified. He tells us uh, many of the things that happened to give perspective on this bigger picture. Uh, And notice he highlights, we can say three things about Jesus' crucifixion that help us understand why this is so significant. First, there is the casting of lots. He tells us there in verse 24, they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Uh, Mark sees something of great significance in this, that he zeroes in on a detail, something as simple as casting of lots. But we just read from Psalm 22, and we saw how in Psalm 22, it describes, David as describing the Lord's anointed as going through this period of suffering where he is forsaken by others and surrounded by enemies, one that is uh, vulnerable and feeling abandoned even by God, where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in that psalm, it goes on uh, to say he speaks of having his hands pierced uh, and his feet pierced. He speaks of having his garments uh, uh, divided by casting of lots, and he speaks about those who pass by ridiculing him. Later, down in verse 29, it says, Those who uh, passed by derided him, derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. As Mark is highlighting the casting of lots, he's doing it in order to highlight how we think about Jesus. His experience is matching that of what David was describing when he described the experience of the Lord's anointed, that he would be one who suffers alienation, one who suffers attacks, one who suffers a sense of being uh, forsaken even by God, and yet in the midst of all of that, continues to trust, who continues to trust in his God, that he will be delivered, and that his suffering is not in vain. And so there's a significance that Mark is trying to highlight here, even in the fact that the casting of lots is happening around Jesus. It's matching what we see elsewhere in Scripture about what would happen to the Lord's anointed. The second thing that Mark highlights about the crucifixion of Jesus, the surrounding details, is the charge that comes up against him. It says there in verse 26, the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews... In John's gospel, it tells us that that was put in all three languages so that it was universally realized. And it was oftentimes the case that a person that was being crucified would have an inscription. There would be some poster, some sign. Either that sign would accompany them on the way to the crucifixion or it would hang around their neck or something like that at the place of crucifixion. Because the whole point is so that other people say, This is what happens when you do X, Y, Z. This is what your fate will be if you associate with this movement. And so here the charge is intentional. It was a practice so that people got the message. But here the message that is being communicated is this is the king of the Jews. Now obviously that is meant to be a, a rub. It's digging in at the Jews here. This is your pathetic king. It's really demeaning to the Jews. But more than that, what it's highlighting is is that Jesus is being crucified on the charge of being king. If we're going to understand why he's condemned, it's on the claims of being king. And so here Pilate makes public uh, this whole matter, that we are to think about Jesus on the basis of the charge and of his claim of being king. So there's the casting of the lots, something that mirrors Psalm 22 and the experience of the Lord's anointed, one who suffers, one who is abandoned, but one who is still hoping in God. He is one who's being crucified, but he's being crucified as a king. That is the grounds upon which he is being uh, uh, rejected as such. But then thirdly, the third detail that Mark highlights is his company. It says in verse 27, with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And it tells us that they too uh, were reviling Jesus. Earlier, you remember, we talked about that word robber. It can mean anything from a mere thief, your common thief, all the way up to someone who is a a political revolutionary, an insurrectionist trying to overthrow the government. And it's, it's not exactly clear here but you remember that barabbas himself was described as a robber in mark's gospel and it's possible that these two people who are now being crucified could have been linked uh, with barabbas but more importantly as we come to look at this it's not just the charge of being a robber but rather it is uh, the fact that he is numbered with those who are transgressors Having a robber on his left and a robber on his right, he is again fulfilling what scripture would say uh, that, as it says in Isaiah 53, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many. The reason why the Lord's anointed experienced this suffering was in order to rescue sinners from their sins. Isaiah said he bore the sins of many. And the one who bore the sins of many was counted with those who were wicked. The criminals that are being condemned to death, Jesus is situated right there in the middle. He is fulfilling again what Isaiah uh, highlighted. So as we come to think about the crucifixion, we have to start by saying, did these things happen? And we have to be able to explain, if we're not convinced that the crucifixion happened, we have to explain what did happen, why it is that the early church would say these things, and what made people convinced to believe them. Much more likely, we have a message that is being spread around because these things did happen. But then we have to say, what do we think about the crucifixion? Do we really just think of it as the acting of men that led out as to this situation? Or do we recognize God's hand behind it? That's what Mark is really hinting at. Jesus is crucified. Casting of lots is happening. Transgressors are surrounding him. He's being reviled. He's being mocked on the grounds of being the king of the Jews. He's fulfilling the destiny of what Isaiah said would happen to him. All of these prophecies are being fulfilled not by Jesus himself, but unto Jesus, by those who are around him. It's not as though he is uh, forcing these prophecies to be fulfilled. It's that these people are doing what God said would be decreed to be done. And so we see here uh, God's hand. But if we find ourselves unwilling to grant that God's uh, involvement here it really begs us to ask the question, is it because I don't want to acknowledge that God is that involved in this world? That I don't want to believe in a God that draws close like that. Is it because we're uncomfortable with the idea that God interacts with his world? You see, the cross, the cross confronts us with the truth of our sin. Because it teaches us that our sin brings judgment. Sin brings the curse. Jesus was crucified because cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. But the cross also teaches us something about God. That God draws near. That God is controlling and directing all things, even down to the details of having your hands and your feet pierced in Psalm 22. God's hand is involved in what is happening here. And it shows us that God is a God who does not stand aloof, but a God who is redeeming what we have broken. A God who comes to rescue sinners. And so as we think about the crucifixion, yes, it happened. But what does it mean? It's teaching us about our sin. It's teaching us that we are guilty before God, that that sin has real consequences and that we need a real savior. But it's teaching us that God has provided that savior. How do I know? You see all the scriptures pointing to this reality. You see how Jesus is providing us what we ultimately stand in need of, a righteousness before God, one who takes the penalty of our sin on our behalf, Uh, And so all of this is showing us um, the reality of God's work. Tells us that one of the taunts of the chief priests was that he saved others. He cannot save himself. There's a ring of truth in that, but not in the way that they thought. They thought that the nails in Jesus' hands physically prevented him from coming down. They thought that in his helpless state, Jesus couldn't rescue himself. Whereas the truth of it, the irony of it, is is that Jesus could not save himself if he was going to save others. You remember, that's what Jesus' ministry was, that unless a person loses their own life, it won't be saved. If a person is going to be a follower of Jesus, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And now Jesus shows what that actually means. Because he's willing to not save himself in order to save others. They're mocking him about what he cannot do. And Jesus is willing to endure that mockery in order to rescue sinners, in order to accomplish the Father's will, in order to bring salvation from sin. He was going to fulfill the Father's will by bearing the sins of many in order that many would be accounted as righteous. Psalm 22 describes the experiences of Jesus' sufferings, but it also talks about that great reversal that would come. You have rescued me. And all the ends of the earth will hear. All the ends of the earth will turn and remember their Lord. That was the faith of Jesus on the cross. He believed that God would rescue him. And that he would answer his cries. And that as a result, he would gather with the Lord's people in worship. How do you think about the crucifixion? Is it simply with mockery that these are just old tales that people talk about? These are things that happened a long time ago and they have no relevance for me. Or do you see these things as actually having happened? But more than that, that God's hand is involved in it and that I stand in need of what happened as well. Because I recognize that I myself am a sinner and that sin brings the curse. That I need a real savior who delivers me through his real work when we recognize that Jesus would not come down from the cross in order to save sinners, then we can say, hallelujah, what a savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about the crucifixion, that we would see it as a work of God. We pray that we would be able to see the historicity of it but we pray that by your spirit we would be granted eyes of faith to see it as a work of salvation. Help us, Lord, to realize the reality of guilt, the penalty, and the judgment of sin. Help us also to realize what it teaches us about the God who is, and to be thankful that our God is a God who saves. Go before us for Christ's sake. Amen.